Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And today I am joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I am surviving. It is a uh, you know, lovely finals time again. So I, I'm just trying to uh, make it through and enjoying this as a uh, happy little break from that. The most wonderful time of the year, I'm sure. Uh, and then also joining us today is Ben Stout. Ben, how are you doing? Doing well. Excited to be here. Um, so on this week's show, uh, we are. I'm sharing a couple of conversations that I had uh, with with y'all today uh, for our first topic. I talked with Spencer Donovan. He's a staff writer at the Red and Black, and we talked about uh, this issue that has emerged on the campus of the University of Georgia, where. Uh, in renovating Baldwin Hall on campus, the university uh, excavated some remains of some slaves and uh, re uh, reburied them in a way that activists have found uh, to be disrespectful. And it's created um, this movement on campus and among community groups in Athens to try to push the university to uh, both recognize the University of Georgia's role in slavery and to uh, take some other actions that are meant to uh, redress those concerns. Um, so we talked about that issue and, and how this came to life and uh, what the feelings in the community are right now about this. Um, and this was an issue that was completely off the radar for me, um, but I think it's an important one in the, in the broader conversation and, and one worth sharing. Um, then for our second topic this week, we are going to talk about Stacey Abrams' decision to not run for Senate against David Perdue next year. Um, on Monday, she announced that she would take a pass on that race, and she was going to focus on some of the things she's been focusing on, like her efforts to increase access to the ballot uh, for people in our state. And then for our final topic this week, I sat down with Rachel Kinsey. She's a Democrat uh, challenging Barry Loudermilk in Georgia's 11th congressional district in next year's elections. We talked about her views on a variety of issues and a really tough conversation that she had to have with her daughter uh, about gun safety and gun violence in schools, which is uh, pertinent uh, yet again this week after another shooting at UNC Charlotte. Um, this shooting did happen after we talked on Monday. Uh, but you know, it's, it's an issue that we are still dealing with in our politics. Um, but before we get to all that, let's start with my conversation with Spencer Donovan from the red and black. Okay. So we're now joined by Spencer Donovan, a staff writer at the red and black, uh, Spencer, thank you for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Could you start by just describing for us how this discussion over the remains of people who were slaves and how their remains were treated, uh, how this discussion all began? Yeah, so discussion actually began as soon as the remains were uncovered in 2015. Athens Area Black History Committee co-chair Fred Smith Sr. said he doubted the university's original claim that the remains were from people of European descent. And this belief was confirmed in a DNA analysis that followed in 2016. Then in March 2017, UGA actually reinterred the remains in a nearby cemetery um, named the Coney Hill Cemetery just down the street. And there was no public ceremony. And Mr. Smith actually watched this reinterment through the locked cemetery fence as workers unloaded these boxes of the remains from just like a rental truck, like a U-Haul and just place them into a large hole in the ground. And later in a statement, UGA's executive direct director of media communications, Greg Trevor, said the university wanted to avoid a, quote, spectacle. 
So that's why the reinterment was not announced or made open to the public. But Mr. Smith and other community members said UGA should have consulted with the local black community. And he said, these people are the presumed descendants of the people whose remains were unearthed at Baldwin Hall. This idea of consultation was actually reinforced by UGA faculty who accepted a report by just like a faculty Senate group uh, last week on April 23rd. And the report's authors said the university didn't properly consult with people. They consulted with people who they were already connected with, and this didn't really constitute proper outreach to the presumed descendant community. So we're talking on Wednesday, and on Monday there was a demonstration on campus where a group of students and people from community groups were asking for a meeting with UGA President Jerry Moorhead. Um, can you describe what you saw at the demonstration that day and why demonstrators wanted to meet with UGA's president? Yeah, so there were more than 60 people by just my rough count, and these people were Athens residents, local activists, UGA students, UGA faculty, professors, and they gathered in front of Moorhead's office building, the UGA administration building on campus um, on Monday to protest. And they were basically saying they're fed up with UGA's response and they want action now and they're tired of UGA saying that the university has done enough. And so they went to try and meet with Moorhead to discuss their demands, which include a formal apology for UGA's history of slavery the creation of a center for slavery research at UGA and raising the minimum wage for UGA employees to $15 per hour. So in these demands, what what would these demands actually mean in practice? Yeah, so the biggest one, the reparational scholarships, it's a little bit unclear on exactly what those scholarships would look like. Um, the groups haven't really explained this specifically and in their letter to Moorhead and, and their demands, they haven't really talked about it. Um, but they did deliver a letter with these specific demands on April 10th to President Moorhead's secretary. And that full part says they want UGA to, quote, guarantee full tuition, all fees included scholarships for descendants of the enslaved people who worked on UGA's campus and for every African-American student who graduates from a public high school in Athens as a first step toward redressing the longstanding reparational debt that UGA owes to the African-American community and the local public schools in Athens. And Moorhead actually responded in an op-ed to the Red and Black editor, and he said that UGA is not, quote, permitted to provide race-based undergraduate scholarships. So it's a little bit unclear on who exactly would institute these scholarships and if they're even, the university's even allowed to have those scholarships. But the other demands, such as the formal apology, would be similar to, say, what other universities, such as the University of Alabama, have done, which is just issuing a formal statement with the university's name on it and having that recognition, like UGA saying, yes, our past was associated with slavery and we profited from slavery. And we are apologizing for that. We are officially recognizing this history. And then the minimum wage, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour comes from the fact that most UGA service or maintenance workers, so employees in the dining halls, um, people working as custodians throughout all of the different buildings on campus, 
somewhere around 40% of all of those employees are African-American. These groups are basically saying that those people are working for, quote unquote, slave wages today, and their ancestors worked as slaves back in UGA's early days. And so they're saying that the university needs to raise the minimum wage to a, quote, living wage. And the creation for a center uh, for slavery research centers more on this idea that UJ faculty and professors who are interested in researching their institutions, the university's relationship with slavery in the past, especially historians, uh, researchers in the African American Institute, history department, from all different departments, anthropology. Some professors have expressed interest in specific research, but UGA doesn't seem as ready to link themselves with the history of slavery. So on this, you mentioned that, um, you know, the university said that they weren't permitted to provide race-based undergraduate scholarships. And you talked a little bit about the Slavery Center, too. Does the university view these as technical issues that they're, like, willing to work on? They just have to work through the technicalities of it? Or are they uh, less warm to these demands by demonstrators? UGA doesn't really want to even consider these demands, at least in the response that President Moorhead released to that April 10 letter that these local activists handed in to them. And he basically described this whole thing as or all these demands being put on by, quote, a small group of local activists who were driven by a personal agenda. One of the chants actually at this protest on Monday was, I don't see, it was basically like, I don't see a small group of activists. Like we've 60 people out here. The community, and when I say the community, I mean Athens and UGA because they're pretty intertwined. The community has gradually started participating more and more in this protest. How engaged is the student body in this issue? I I know that I read in your reporting that the uh, UGA student government was involved somehow. Yeah, so the Student Government Association Senate, which is like the legislative body for the whole student government, um, they passed a non-binding resolution to, quote, honor and memorialize the enslaved people who have worked at UGA. This measure doesn't really mention Baldwin Hall. And last year, in spring 2018, former UGA SGA president Cameron Keene vetoed a similar resolution due to, quote, factual incongruencies. A lot of what the authors of that resolution said were that UGA administrators thought that resolution portrayed the administration in a negative light, especially around the Baldwin Hall issue. And so the resolution that was passed this year did not mention Baldwin Hall at all. It's important to keep in mind that SGA can only encourage the university to do certain things or make recommendations. They don't have any actual power in the sense that if they pass resolutions saying to do certain things, that the university has to do them. There's no legal mandate. But one of the recommendations in this recently passed resolution was to construct a monument dedicated to the enslaved people who worked at or built buildings at UGA. And critics within the SGA Senate have said that the Georgia General Assembly would have to pass legislation to create such a monument and that UGA couldn't really do that on their own. 
Oh, I can't even imagine that issue making its way to the Gull Dome and, and having a good right, exactly. resolution to it. Um, for our listeners that want to keep an eye on this, where does this issue go from here? Yeah, so if UGA responds how they have been responding, I assume they will keep repeating their same argument, which is that they handled these remains that were unearthed at Baldwin Hall respectfully and in accordance with certain laws. But this protest on Monday was actually the largest collective call for UGA to address its history of slavery. And I really expect some opposition to these demands from UGA donors and Georgia state officials. So it's unclear whether the demands will come to fruition, but it is interesting that more and more people in the UGA community and the UGA student body and members of the faculty at UGA have become more involved. The leaders of this movement with these demands plan to build their base in the summer and reach out to more people who, more people, I guess, in the black community in Athens, in the local black community, rather than just UGA faculty, UGA researchers and activist leaders, they hope to reach out to everyday black Athenians. And they hope to take more actions and protests when classes start back at UGA this fall. All right. Well, Spencer, this is an issue that we are going to keep an eye on, um, and we'd love to learn more about what uh, folks in the Athens community think about this. Um, so for our listeners, you're you're probably going to hear more about this on the podcast soon. And Spencer, we'd love to have you back to talk about this some more. Yeah, definitely. We'll be in touch. All right. So thank you to Spencer for uh, joining the podcast. And that is an issue that we are definitely going to keep an eye on moving forward. Uh, But for now, let's move on to our second topic this week. On Tuesday, Stacey Abrams said that she would not join the U.S. Senate race to challenge David Perdue in 2020. Her decision unfroze the field of Democratic contenders. And the next day, Teresa Tomlinson formerly entered that race. We talked to Tomlinson on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. So if you missed that interview, you now have even one more reason to check that out. Uh, But uh, Teresa Tomlinson likely won't walk easily to the nomination as Sarah Riggs Amico, who lost last year's lieutenant governor's race. She is reportedly considering a bid, and John Ossoff hasn't ruled it out. Um, Luke, let's start with your reaction to Stacey Abrams deciding not to enter this race. Do you think that this significantly impacts Democrats' chances to win this Senate seat in 2020? I really don't, because when you look at Senate races in the past couple years, especially last cycle, honestly, and even Georgia's 2014 cycle, what what does everyone always talk about when it comes to recruiting? It's always trying to get that like big name Democrat candidate. You know, we had Phil Bresden in Tennessee last cycle. We had Russ Feingold in 2016 tried to run. We had Michelle Nung in uh, Georgia run in 2014, which also there's rumors that she might try to take it, uh, a rematch at uh, Purdue and run for the seat again. And, you know, none of those candidates won. And so I don't really think there's a lot of, like, credence to this idea that, like, the only way you can win a Senate race is by getting a big-name candidate. Because at least in, like, the races that we did win in these tough cycles, it was really candidates that, like, most people hadn't heard of in the state. You know, like, Kirsten Sinema was someone uh, who was a big recruit, but it's not like she'd won statewide office before. She was just a popular congresswoman. So I really don't think, like, this is a make-or-break moment and the race got decided because of what Abrams did. So I I really am excited because... 
uh, based on a lot of what Abrams had said, but also just my personal feelings and how I watched her run the uh, uh, governor's race last time. Like, she really wants to be governor of Georgia, and I just don't think she wanted to be a senator nearly as badly, and I think um, she did the right thing in, you know, uh, not running for an office that she wasn't as excited to be as she was excited to be the governor of Georgia. Ben, what is the view from the right here? Do do you think that Senator Perdue is breathing a sigh of relief that Stacey Abrams is not jumping into this race? Or or do you think he was kind of good to go no matter who decides to jump in from the Democratic side? No, I mean, obviously, we're, his election coincides with the presidential election. And so that's going to have a huge part to play in it. But as far as who his challenger is... Um, I would say that there is a sigh of relief. It's not a massive sigh of relief. But I mean, like, let's be honest, Stacey Abrams was going to bring in massive amounts of uh, outside of the state money. She's very well spoken. She already has the infrastructure. She would have been by far, in my opinion, his hardest opponent, just because she already has name recognition in place, donors in place. And uh, and Teresa Tomlin, to me, and, and some of the others who announced they, they just kind of seem like a Jason Carter or Michelle Nunn 2.0. They don't just have that extra oomph that she has. I mean, let's be honest, as much as I don't care for her policies, uh, Stacey Abrams is is uh, a unique gift to the Democrat Party here in Georgia. Uh, it's one of kind of those rare talents that you see come along. First round draft pick every time. And so um, so I think that David Perdue's got to be happy not to, to have to go against that. And, uh, and right now, I mean, the field is, um, you know, uh, the field looks very beatable. Do y'all view this as a recruiting failure for Chuck Schumer, the Democratic Senate? Uh, he's currently the minority leader, but he's a Democratic leader in the Senate. Do y'all feel like this was a big swing and a miss for him? Or if if you feel this doesn't impact the chances all that much, is Schumer, you know, still happy with the candidates that are going to be out there? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think that David Perdue is going to win this seat either way. I just think that the gap widened a little bit. I mean, he is um, well-spoken and well uh, thought of even in the suburban communities, uh, which is where Brian Kemp ha- had some issues. And and David Perdue appeals to both the rural and suburban Georgians. And so I think that he's a he's a 52% win is, is my feeling. And so as far as from the perspective of Chuck Schumer, um, I'm not sure if they he, they really felt like that this was a winnable seat. I think that with Stacey running that maybe they would have really poured in that national money and thought that it was, that they could have flipped it. But um, now I just, I think you're going to be hard pressed to expect them to put in 25 or $30 million into the Senate seat. Luke, one of the things I found interesting out of polling early in this, early this year is David Perdue's favorables are significantly higher in the state of Georgia than Donald Trump's. And I think if you're, looking forward to this election and looking forward to uh, what may be a disappearing opportunity for Trump to cost Republicans down ballot in the way that Republicans capitalized on uh, the unpopularity of Barack Obama and took a lot of seats down ballot from his party during elections during his presidency. Does it concern you that Purdue's numbers are not more closely tied to Trump's numbers given that Purdue himself and in his policies and in his style seems to be pretty closely tied to the president. I'm not worried about that yet because to be honest, most 
uh, you know, from most of the coverage that I see, and I pay pretty close attention to Georgia politics, like, David Perdue just doesn't come up that much. He comes up, like, in national reporting, I feel, a lot more than he comes up in Georgia reporting. And so, maybe I'm wrong, but I think when he ran in 2014, a lot of people kind of saw him as, like, a Mitt Romney, but, you know, a Georgia Mitt Romney, basically. Like, I kind of, I feel like people made that comparison uh, in 2014, and it was one that they made positively. I don't think Purdue has really faced a lot of challenge, uh, you know, being a senator. It's not like a lot of other senators are, like, calling him out in the way that, like, Mitch McConnell or, like, Tom Cogging or Lindsey Graham gets called out. So I think that's going to change significantly when he actually has an opponent who's making the news in the same way that he's making the news and going out there every day and, you know, asking, you know, David Purdue what he thinks about what Trump is doing and... Purdue, for the people that watch him closely, has made it quite clear that he pretty much likes everything Donald Trump does and sometimes wishes he would, you know, uh, double down on what he's doing. So on that front, I think uh, Purdue's fate will be pretty closely tied to the uh, you know presidential result in Georgia. So if, a, if the presidential campaign decides that Georgia is part of their calculus and they're going to really try to try to win the state, I think that would be... Uh, a really big boon to whoever's running for Senate on the Democratic side. And, you know, if if Trump wins Georgia, I you know, there's a sl- small possibility that Purdue would lose it, but I, I think the other way is more true that there's a, like, the there's a larger possibility that Trump loses Georgia and Purdue wins than Purdue loses and Trump wins, in my mind. Because, like Ben said, he's, you know, familiar to uh, folks in the state and he's, you know, liked by a lot of the voters that Trump needs to win and Purdue would need to win. But I, I think I think there is a strong argument to be made against David Purdue. It just hasn't been made yet. Yeah, I haven't seen it made yet. I, I feel like I've been trying to make it on Twitter and it's not personal to David Perdue, but I, I am curious about what will resonate in this race and what resonates for me as an observer and as somebody who is evaluating the job that David Perdue has done as senator is the ongoing failure of the Senate to finalize disaster relief for the victims of uh, Hurricane Michael, which struck Georgia in October of 2018. It is now May of 2019, and we still do not have relief on this issue. And I have been endlessly frustrated at the fact that this was not an issue that was solved in December, despite the fact that Senator Isaacson said, oh, you know, Congress doesn't usually screw these things up, we're going to get it done. And at the time, he was worried about the farm bill. But you didn't have an effort to put disaster relief in the farm bill. You didn't have an effort to condition either avoiding a government shutdown or reopening the government on getting the job done on disaster relief. And I am increasingly frustrated at the fact that David Perdue is not recognizing that he might have some leverage in the Senate to force this issue, whether he has to force Trump to swallow a bill that Trump doesn't love, or whether he has to force Mitch McConnell to take a stand. Because the one thing that the Senate is working on this week is nominations, nominations of judges, nominations of other executive branch officials. And this is the one thing that the Senate continues to do consistently. This is the top priority of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And David Perdue has not 
you know, tried to impact Senate processes, has not tried to hold things up. And I don't think he's really put his back into getting this job done for Georgia. Instead, he's writing op-eds in Fox News about how the Democrats are the ones to blame and for holding this issue up. So so let me ask you a question, Kyle. Do you lay the, do you lay the same amount of blame at Senator Isaacson's feet? And would you say that he's a failure and not bowing his back because we haven't gotten this done? Is this equally Senator Isaacson's fault? So the thing that frustrates me is it's not clear to me that Senator Isaacson has the ear of President Trump the way that David Perdue does. Perdue told Politico flatly, he said, I influence this president. Mm -hmm. He was very clear that he himself is an asset for Georgia because of his relationship with the president. Right. And from the reporting that I've read, the sticking point in these negotiations is President Trump's refusal to grant more aid to Puerto Rico. And there is bipartisan support for providing additional aid to Puerto Rico. And, and to for, for people that may not remember this, the context here is we're dealing with disasters that happened in late 2018 and early 2019 for several southern states and some flooding in the Midwest and some some fire some wildfires out in California out on the West Coast. But we are also dealing with additional disaster relief for two hurricanes that struck Puerto Rico in 2017. And the president has insisted that Puerto Rican officials have mismanaged the aid that has been given to Puerto Rico during that crisis, and he is refusing to provide more aid. But there's a bipartisan group, including Georgia, uh, Georgia's own representative, Austin Scott, who is saying that if giving more aid to Puerto Rico is what we need to do to get aid to Georgia, then let's do it. Because these are disasters that have affected, you know, Americans in Georgia and several other southern states and Americans in Puerto Rico. And so if the sticking point really is President Trump, and David Perdue has influence over President Trump, it's not clear to me that he's using it. And that's what frustrates me. But Ben, I don't know if I'm the only one that's like following the blow by blow on this. And that is very concerned about this. And, and I don't really know if this issue will resonate. Uh, But to me, it's a really key factor in evaluating the job he's done as Senator. Well, first, I'm going to say that I think it's kind of, uh, it's odd to hear Luke uh, say that we're going to attack uh, David Perdue in Georgia, because he is so close to the president. And then Kyle, you're saying that we're going to um, attack the uh, David Perdue because he's close to the president and not using it. So it's like it's a bad thing that he's close to the president and not using it, and it's a bad thing that he's close to the president. So I, I don't know if we want him close to the president or not at this point. It's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the Senator Isaacson and Senator Perdue have worked extremely hard uh, in, in trying to get the disaster relief um, through. Because this isn't just a negotiation, as you mentioned, with the president. It's a negotiation between the House and the Senate, right? The Senate has to be able to pass a bill that Nancy Pelosi would agree with in the House and House Dems would. And so far, that has not happened. This isn't a uh, a Senate confirmation type thing where it's just the Senate and the president. Um, and finally, when we're talking about election season, uh, when you go around and you say that Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi really wanted to take care of the farmers or David Perdue, who grew up a farmer, and uh, and kind of speaks that language when he goes to farmers and said, I did all I could do. They held it up. I think that I think that he's going to win that argument here in Georgia. Well, to be clear on my position, uh, 
I was more, when I said that uh, David Perdue was close to Trump, I mean more like his policy beliefs, his tone, and the issues that he's advocating for. I actually really uh, would agree with Kyle in the sense that being close to a president of either party is a good thing, you know, and I, I would not criticize any senator who was close to a president on a personal level and was able to get things done because of that. And I, and I would think, uh, you know, if, if Purdue was using his influence uh, to help Georgia in a clearer way, that would be a real boon to him. Because at least in my view, and if Ben, you have some things to point out that I don't see just being in the circles that I am, I'd love to hear it. I've always thought of David Perdue as a Republican senator far more than a Georgia senator, whereas I think the opposite of Isaacson, that he is a Georgia senator and also a Republican. And that's that's sort of just the feeling and the vibration I get from how I see the two senators operate and haven't seen too much to make me think otherwise on that. Yeah, I don't have a rebuttal that. I just think I think that's a, that's an interesting um that's just even an interesting thought concept on a Georgia senator being a Georgian versus a Republican. Um, but I don't know. I, don't, I, I just think that's an interesting way of phrasing it. Yeah, it's it's obviously not uh, mutually exclusive. You can be both. But it just seems like Isaacson kind of goes out of his ways to late, you know, say, like, I'm promoting Georgia's interest here, whereas uh, Purdue's always doing what is uh, convenient for the Republican Party, I feel. Yeah, I think for me, the thing that has stuck out to me is the one big piece of legislation that Purdue is on right now is an immigration bill that uh, him and Tom Cotton have introduced that to me is maybe a more sophisticated uh, expression of Donald Trump's priorities on immigration, but is one that is certainly aligned with the way he views that issue. Um, Whereas, you know, I, I can't think of big legislation that Isaacson is on right now, but I do you know, when I think of Isaacson, I think of him more in the trenches of negotiations. And but, um, you know, but I mean, I think that there is blame to lay at Isaacson's feet about this issue also. But I also think that there is blame to lay across the entire delegation. To me, specific to this issue, um, I just don't think that has been, it has been made a high enough priority when the consequences are so dire for people who have survived a disaster. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be blatantly partisan about this, but I I think that most of the blame lays at Purdue because of his influence. But I think this should have been a top priority and a priority that should have held up some processes in the Congress for the entire delegation. Let's close uh, on, on what we think, how we think things might shake out for the Democratic field. Uh, Teresa Tomlinson announced uh, this morning, we're recording on Wednesday night, she announced this morning that she had raised, I think, something like $250,000. She is the only uh, declared candidate at this point, and and everybody else is rumored or speculated to, to jump in here. Do we think Teresa Tomlinson is sort of like in the pole position in this race? Is this her race to lose, or is this sort of fully wide open depending on who decides to ultimately enter. I think it's wide open, but I think she does come in with an advantage because of all the other candidates that I've heard that I think are possible. None of them have been elected before. 
Um, you know, Sarah Riggs Miko ran for lieutenant governor, you know, did better than many of our candidates for lieutenant governor have done in, you know, quite a while, but did not win. John Ossoff did not win. And the only other name I've heard, and I don't really even know how serious this is, but like I mentioned uh, before, Michelle Nunn has been thrown out there and at least has not uh, declined to say that she might run uh, again. So, on, on that front, I think this will be a very competitive primary. Um, you know, Teresa Tomlinson was, from everything I've heard from a lot of my friends in Columbus, a very popular and successful mayor. And she has really been thinking about this race. In, in my mind, I would put Abrams thinking about running for governor like I would put Teresa Tomlinson thinking about running against David Perdue in the same way. Like they both very methodically wanted to run for this position at this time in the same way Abrams wanted to run in 2018 and try to be governor. Tomlinson has wanted to be senator uh, and run this race against David Perdue. So on that front, she kind of has that advantage that she's like really been wanting to do this. And I think she has a strong argument of, I want to be senator for Georgia. Whereas the other folks all ran for other positions recently, except none. And, you know, we'll have to shift some of the arguments they've been making uh, for that. So I, I think it's going to be very competitive still, but I think Tomlinson definitely has a leg up in the sense she's just been doing it longer. Let me ask a question. Why doesn't uh, Alyssa Milano run for it? <laughs> Do you I think, have to I think be... she wants to run for governor more than <laughs> I think she wants to run for uh, benevolent emperor of Georgia and just impose her will. Well, for real, why, why doesn't she run for it? <laughs> uh, does she even live here? You have to my, be a my resident. Po- yeah, my point exactly. So she on needs to Senate stay Center. out of Georgia politics. Moving on, I think it's wide open. Um, uh, I think it's wide open. Uh, I thought that um, Jen Jordan, uh, during this last legislative session, had made enough waves that maybe she would get into it. She announced that she will not. Uh, but I think which I think could, is great, by the way. Yeah, I mean, she's <laughs> we she, need her. <laughs> she she would have been a very good candidate, though. She really would. Oh, have. I agree. I, I, I do agree. And she so um, uh, and so th- that was interesting for me to see. I just I, I agree with you that that somebody who really wants that seat, who's been wanting that seat, who's already been laying the groundwork, has a leg up. But to me, Tomlinson, whenever I've heard her speak, she just doesn't have that special juice that you're like, whoa, you know what I'm saying? Like if you've heard like yeah. Jeff Duncan speak in person or see, like they've got the juice, you know, and I, Teresa Tomlinson just doesn't have that for me. So because of that reason, I, I think that um, that there may be some room in the Democrat Party primary. Yeah. The the one thing uh, I will say on that, because I usually agree with that, but the last two cycles have really changed my mind on that because I have seen candidates that started out without that wow factor get it because I think Democrats have just gotten better at campaigning and, you know, we're getting more resources in the state. And so, you know, people uh, like uh, Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux started out like kind of struggling on the trail, but by the end, they were really, really good. Because uh, I saw both of them very early in the cycle and then very late in the cycle, and they had improved significantly. And I think it's really just honestly campaigning around the state and, you know, it's like practice makes perfect. You know, it's like it's not rocket science. It's just like you do it more and you get better at it. And so uh, the kind of speaking that's required to run it, run for Senate um, is not what Tomlinson has been doing. And, you know, she was a, a mayor of a pretty you know big town but it wasn't you know the same kind of like rabble rousing you got to do when you're running statewide so she very well could improve you know with that i wouldn't be surprised if she does at least somewhat um but yeah i i think you're right on that 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 could be a struggle and if um 
someone I'm not expecting jumps in, like a, one of our stronger state house or state senate members, that could really uh, be a struggle for her. But as far as I've heard, I, I think the field is probably going to be the folks we've said, and then you know some ran- random people I believe have already filed as well. But I, I don't know how far, much traction they'll get. Yeah, I would like to go ahead and thank Luke and Kyle both for highlighting their way. Alyssa Milana needs to stay out of Georgia politics. Appreciate that, y'all. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, let's transition to another race um, in my conversation with Rachel Kinsey. She is challenging Barry Loudermilk in Congressional District Number 11. Uh, so here's my conversation with Rachel. So joining the podcast today is Rachel Kinsey, a small business owner from Woodstock and a candidate for Georgia's 11th Congressional District, currently held by Republican Barry Loudermilk. Uh, Rachel, thanks so much for doing the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to dive into the issues and have a great conversation today. Um, So we're really early in the 2020 cycle here. So let's start with just giving our listeners an opportunity to learn a little bit about you. Can you just tell us about your background and what led to you uh, jumping into this race? Yeah, and that's probably my most favorite story to tell because everybody gets asked that. Why did you decide to run? Tell me about yourself. Um, So like you're saying, my husband and I are small business owners. We own the business together. Um, We opened our shop about five years ago, and we've been doing that. We've got several employees. Um, I just love it. I love what I do. I love my clients. But something was different, and it started with Parkland. Um, my daughter, you know, she turned 14 last, uh, excuse me, this past January, last year she was 13 and I picked her up from school, um, from Parkland and, you know, it's real somber and it's always hard as a parent after a school shooting, having to go pick your kid up and talk to them about it. You have to have that conversation. And she looked at me and she goes, mom, you know, if it happened at my school, I would go save all my friends. And that's the brief moment as a, as a parent, you, you pick up in your chest and you have to sit there and have this quick dilemma in your head going, oh my God, my daughter's amazing. She wants to be a hero, but I've got to tell her no. And I remember looking over to her and I said, Maddie Ann, no. I said, I, this is the hardest thing I'm going to have to tell you, but you cannot be a hero. Hero, you hear the phrase all the time, Madison, heroes come home in body bags. I said, if there is a school shooting at your school, your job is to get out the door into safety. I need to bring you home. And she looked at me and she had tears in her eyes. And it's really emotional when you're talking about this with your kids. And I started crying. And she's like, but mom, you're telling me to leave my friends. And I said, yes, I am. I need you home. You, you and your brother are my life. I, I need you to come home. And she's like, mom, something's got to change. And I said, I agree with you. And she looked at me and she goes, mom, you're really smart. And I was like, oh, I'm doing something right. My 13-year-old thinks I'm smart. We're on the right path here. And she goes, you're really good at talking to people. And so I have to be. You know, your dad and I run a CPA firm. I have to be able to talk with people about very hard issues when it comes to money and taxes and planning. I have to be able to talk to people about tough things. She goes, mom, you need to run for office. And I looked at her and I'm like, you're kidding me. Maddie Ann, nobody. What are you talking about? That's never, no, 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 no. She was no, mom, you're really, really good. Please think about it. So she kind of put the bug in my ear. Um, and I've always felt public service was something everybody should do, whether it's your community service and volunteering, you know, helping with nonprofits. It's always something you need to give back to your community. And I always look at running for office as doing that. So I kind of noodled on it for a few days. 
and you talk to my husband and I talk to my, my dad, who I value very much his opinion and his thoughts on things and talk to my mom. And I remember going back to Nadia's room. I knocked on the door a few days later and said, all right, let's do this. I said, but if I'm going to do it, you're going to do it with me. And she was super excited. And that's why I decided to run because my wise 13 year old looked at me and said, something has got to change. And I taking all the knowledge that I've learned and my time here on earth and through my travels and through my business and through the classes I've taken and education I've received and hoping to do the good work that needs to be done. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. I mean, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a business owner, you know, I'm very involved with the community. I'm on a board for a nonprofit that provides food and clothing and now dental treatment to the homeless veterans of Atlanta. So giving back to my community and to my friends and to my neighbors has always been something I'm very passionate about. I want to learn a little more about you, but I first want to pause on this conversation with your daughter here. And you said your daughter said something needs to change. In your view, what is it that needs to change, particularly on this issue of gun violence in schools? Yeah, and it's such a tough issue. And it's because it's a very divisive and it's an emotional issue. And whenever you put emotion into anything, it becomes a very tough conversation to have. But yeah, something needs to change. We need to work as a country to keep our communities safe. I am a very strong protector of the Second Amendment right. It is a constitutional right to be able to bear arms. And I am for enforcing it. And I really want to get some legislation put in, not only at the state levels, but at the federal levels, that will protect the responsible gun, owner, gun owners. It will protect our kids in school. It will protect our communities. Getting red flag laws in place, stuff like that, which, you know, you hear the words all the time, common sense gun reform. And it really is. You know, I, I want to make sure that everybody understands owning a gun is a huge responsibility. And if you're responsible enough to own a gun, you need laws to protect you to be able to carry that gun. But I need laws as a non-gun owner to know that I'm safe. And that's kind of where I come from on this is we have to have a tough conversation about it. And when, like I said, when emotions are put into it, it's hard to have those conversations, but they need to be had at all levels. They need to start in the home. They need to start in the schools and they need to, you know, every state needs to have laws. The federal government needs to have laws and everyone really needs to work together to make everybody safe and our community safe and make our kids feel safe again when they go to school. So this is not your first race for office. Um, you're running in another district that's going to be a tough one for Democrats. Uh, Congressman Loudermilk carried this district 62-38 last cycle. Uh, but you challenged State Senator Bruce Thompson in another tough district in the 2018 midterms. So what lessons do you take from that run for State Senate? That's a great question. I take a lot of lessons that I learned. I never ran for office before. That was my first real true experience in running for office and all the inner workings. I take away several lessons. One is I don't have the answer for everything. I look to people around me who and, and collaborate with them. And that's by talking to your voters. That's by going out and talking to your neighbors. That's talking to Republicans and going, hey, what are your thoughts? What are your ideas on this? And it's learning to listen. And that was a big lesson I learned. It's people listen. But a lot of people listen to have an answer ready. They don't really listen and internalize. And I remember on the campaign trail, um, you know, we were really fortunate. I had a great group of canvassers that went out every Friday and Saturday, and we did over 10,000 doors. 
Um, and I remember one particular afternoon, I knocked on the door, and I hit on everybody's door. I didn't go, well, I'm just going to hit on the Democrat door. No, I'm going to hit on your door because I need to hear from you. And I remember hitting on the door, and it was an older gentleman, and he was a Republican. And I introduced myself, and I shook his hand, and the first question I got was, are you a Democrat or Republican? And I looked at him and I said, what does it matter? And he looked back at me and said, are you a Democrat or Republican? I said, how about I tell you the issues I'm running on, and then you can decide. And he told him where I stood on several issues. And he stood there. He goes, I can't tell. And I said, do you believe in this? Do you value this? And we were standing on his porch for 45 minutes talking with him. He ended up voting for me because he realized it's about the issues. It's not about if someone has a D or R next to their name. And that was a huge lesson I learned away, you know, taking away as well. The other lesson that I learned is you can't knock on all the doors. You can't. You, you know, you, you have to rely on people to help you out and you have to build those relationships. And I made so many fantastic relationships with my campaign staff who came back again when I told them that we we're going to be running for Congress without hesitation from the community of people who followed me after this, who stood here and said, let's go. And I'm like, well, you know, we got 19 months, guys. I'm like, no, let's go. Let's go have these conversations. Let's go find the people and talk to them. So those are what I've really learned from the last cycle. So if you were to get elected to represent the 11th Congressional District, chances are Democrats probably had a pretty good night, including likely taking the White House back and and possibly even the Senate. So you would go to Washington to govern, presumably. So in your view, what should be the top priority for the next Congress if you're serving in it? Healthcare. 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 I cannot say it enough. Healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. From prescription drugs need to be looked at to coming up with a health care policy that will benefit a majority of Americans. I am a small business owner, and I tell you, we feel the pinch every time we have to sign up for health care for my company and provide it to our employees. We feel the pinch every time I have to take my kids to the doctor because the plans out there are not everything we were looking for and we had a compromise. So health care is to be my biggest thing in fixing a system that is broken. The healthcare system is broken in a lot of different levels. There are some really great aspects about it. But as a whole, if somebody has to go into debt or if somebody has to declare bankruptcy, or if you have to make a decision on whether or not you can afford to take your kid to the doctor, that is not okay. Almost a month ago, my daughter had a horrific accident at school. I actually, we took her down to urgent care, the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, urgent care in Kennesaw, and they ended up lifelighting her from there to Scottish Rite. And the first thing, when they said, well, lifelight's coming in, I was like, oh my gosh, this is worse than I thought. The first thing my husband said and looked at me was, oh my gosh, what if insurance doesn't cover this? And I was immediately panicked going, oh my gosh, I can't imagine a mother or father going, no, we can't afford that. We'll we'll have to figure something else out. Um, So healthcare is just, it's something that affects everybody. And that's the biggest thing I want to work on when I go to Washington. Democrats are currently having this debate on what to do about health care. And the debate seems to fall along the lines of whether folks believe that there should be a role for private insurance coverage in the provision of health care. So if you're elected to the House, would you like to see the chamber pursue legislation that prohibits private companies from selling health insurance? Or would you prefer reforms to the existing system where most people get their insurance through their employer or the ACA or Medicare, Medicaid? I think... I think we need to work with the system we have now. It's not perfect. 
you know, we bought our healthcare when, when my husband and I decided to open our business. You know, he had a great corporate job with amazing benefits that his employer paid a lot for. And then when we left, you know, he left and we had to get our own health insurance. That was our first experience with the marketplace and the Affordable Care Act. And we went on and we bought our insurance through there. And yes, we hit a lot of problems like a lot of Americans have. And then when we had to renew it the following year and premiums skyrocketed, we sat there for a minute going, can we afford this? And I think it's a system we have in place now, but it needs to be fixed. Elements of it need to be fixed. I think everyone can agree on that. If we can craft new legislation that would take the elements that are working, because there are elements, covering pre-existing conditions, that is something that benefits everybody. And a lot of people don't realize that because they have employer-sponsored health insurance. But when you leave your job and you go to a new job, you may be part of that pre-existing condition and they may not cover it fully. They may not cover it at all, or you may have a waiting period. So we need to fix what we have now, and we have to be willing to compromise. And there are some areas that have really, we have so much more in common on so many issues than people realize. And I think healthcare and I think prescription coverage is where you start. You start figuring out prescription coverage, and you build from there. Let's stick with healthcare for a moment here. What is your view of House Bill 481, a bill that passed in the state legislature this session that would ban abortions in Georgia at six weeks? I am against it as a woman. Um, I would never, ever. I am personally not for abortion. I, I, can, I can't 100% say I would never have had an abortion. I've never, ever had to be put in that situation. I am for, pre, I am for reproductive freedom for women. It is my body. It is my choice. And a lot of times women do not realize they're pregnant until after six weeks. And a lot of times there are health problems for the mother or for the baby, or unfortunately the pregnancy needs to be terminated. I think it's bad for Georgia on many levels, but that's for business in Georgia. Businesses are not going to want to come to a state that are you're just restricting medical care for women because women are not going to start going to the doctor, and it's really going to do damage to the state. I am against it. Um, I think it's a bad bill. It should never have passed like it did. Um, now, it's a bill in the state house, and you're running for Congress. So, so just for our listeners, these are sort of two separate governments that we're dealing with here. But uh, you do have some uh, purview over this issue as a member of Congress. Um, mm-hmm. So do you uh, think that the policy which blocks federal Medicaid funding for abortion services, this is a policy known as the Hyde Amendment, do you think that that policy should be repealed? Yes. Anything that restricts access for women to get the health care they need. Absolutely. Um, and uh, there's a lot of misconceptions around so many of the bills that you're here. And it's not that women are just going out and having abortions because they can. They're having abortions for medical reasons. They're having abortions for their health or the baby health. So anything that will restrict or make a woman feel like she can't go get the medical care she needs, absolutely. Let's turn to climate change here. So projections for the impact of climate change on the U.S. have become even more dire, with a recent report estimating that the effects of climate change could cause $54 trillion, that's trillion with a T, dollars in damage in the long run. In your view, what should the federal government do about climate change? We need to have a real conversation about climate change. And, you know, the New Deal that uh, AOC put out, it's not the answer to everything. 
But what it did was it started a conversation again, and it started a tough conversation. There needs to be policies put in place to protect. We've only got one planet, and we need to leave something for our kids, and we need to take climate change seriously. I believe in facts. I believe in science. And when their scientists are sitting there telling you study after study, year after year, we need to do something. We need to do something. It's going to cost more money in the long run to try to fix a problem that we already know about now. So I think the government needs to take a step forward. They need to be innovators. America used to be the center for innovation. We need to come to that place again. and We need to take the charge for this. And we need to show the world that we're taking this seriously. And this is what we are doing. And they will, and you know, people will look at America and go, wow, they're investing in renewable energy. Look what they're doing over there. They are working on a serious problem and it'll bring everyone together. How do you get from having a conversation to action? You know, when the Green New Deal was introduced, Republicans roundly mocked it, uh, but they've roundly mocked most solutions that have been presented for climate change, even going back to the last time Democrats held control in Washington. But the time doesn't really seem to be on the side of waiting on this issue. So how do you proceed from a conversation to action? A lot of it, I think, is if we can show that this can be something that businesses can invest in and that people can invest in. And it's something where, you know, everybody, we're in a capitalist society. If we can make money on it, people want to do it. So we need to make incentive programs for businesses to want to take that step forward. We want to make incentives for homeowners to maybe put some solar panels up on their, their buildings. You know, get communities involved with just doing simple things like, you know, cleaning up rivers. You know, up here there's the Etowah Project where they go in and they clean the Etowah River once a month. And things like that. I think getting the government to work with the states at that level and have the states work the local communities is where it's going to start. And we need to start, something's got to be done. That is something that most Americans will agree with. How does that look? I don't have an answer. I don't have the, hey, this is exactly how it's going to roll because I don't know. But putting a lot of smart people in a room together and working and going, look, what are your ideas? You may have mocked us, but you haven't come back with any ideas. Show me what your ideas are. We'll be able to find, you know, some ideas we can work together on and start implementing them. Um, so what, one piece of this issue around the environment and, and climate change is the issue of transit. And much of the focus locally on expanded transit has been put on Gwinnett County in the I-85 corridor. They had that referendum that Gwinnett County rejected earlier this year. But traffic is also a problem going northwest from Atlanta and into the congressional district that you hope to represent. So what is your view about the role that transit should play up the I-75 corridor? And would you like to see federal investments in uh, transit in those counties? Yeah, I think the federal should invest. I think the federal government should get programs to invest in that and work with the states on expanding mass transit. You know, I had the privilege of living in Europe for three years, um, and I used the public transportation system over there. And it was it perfect? No. Was it great? Yes. Was I able to travel all around without having to rent a car? Absolutely. The train system over there is fantastic. The subway system, the tunnel, all that kind of stuff is amazing, and it's mass transit. Yes, we need to invest in mass transit. In Atlanta, it's a real, like most big cities, you know, living in Atlanta is very expensive. Living inside the perimeter is very expensive. So a lot of people move. You know, we live up here, one, because we love it, but two, 
a lot less expensive to live up in Woodstock than it is to live down in Bus, you know, in Atlanta. And my husband used to have to commute from um, Woodstock to the perimeter, hour and a half every day, three hours of his day, sitting on 75, going to 285, just sitting in traffic. We need to alleviate the traffic problem. And not only alleviating the congestion will help clean the air, but I don't know about you, but I'm not in the best mood when I have to sit in traffic for an hour and a half and I get to my destination. I'm usually pretty frustrated and I'm usually angry. And if my kids are with me, my four-year-old is going bonkers after having to sit in his car seat for an hour and a half. Seeing mass transit is great. My kids love riding MARTA. They would just ride MARTA because they could ride MARTA. So we definitely need to invest in mass transportation. We need to bring it up 75. We need to bring it up 85. We've got to bring it up 400 more. 400 getting to have a real traffic problem. Well, they already have one as well. But the government, the federal government, needs to lead the way and invest in, because it's investing in the infrastructure. Um, so the marquee legislation for Democrats in the U.S. House this Congress is a bill that, among other things, creates a national automatic voter registration system, makes Election Day a federal holiday, ends partisan gerrymandering, and adopts reforms to limit the influence of money in politics, like publicly financed elections. This is a bill that's unlikely to pass during this Congress. But what is your view of this kind of slate of proposals, and would you support a similar measure in the next Congress? I absolutely will. I absolutely support, you know, everyone who is a citizen has a right to vote. Help them get registered to vote. It should not, being able to vote is something that people have fought for for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. You need to be able to use your voice. Your vote is your voice. And if you're stopped and making it difficult, it's not helping anything. It's hurting democracy. So, yes, we need to have a bill that makes voting a holiday, make it a paid holiday. You know, I'm an employer. And, you know, I have to pay my employees their salary, whether they show up or not. And I pay them on the major holidays. I would have no problem paying my employees to be able to go and vote. That is the right. And, as you know, we need to make it easier for people to get to the ballot box, to register, to vote, and be able to use that. So I am all for looking and helping to craft legislation that helps that. Let's pause on policy here and and give you a chance to react to the findings from the Mueller report and where you stand on oversight of President Trump. So uh, Attorney General Bill Barr recently released a redacted report of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian influence into Russian efforts to influence the 2016 election. The report concluded that there was insufficient evidence to establish that the president or his associates engaged in a criminal conspiracy with Russia, but the special counsel did not clear the president on obstruction of justice, leaving that determination to Congress. Do you believe that House Democrats at this point should begin impeachment proceedings against President Trump? And if not, what is the proper path forward? I don't think they should begin impeachment proceedings right now. That is not what the country needs. The country is, I don't ever remember a time in my life where the country ever being this divided. So what what we really need to do in the House and the Democrats need to do in the House, is they need to continue the investigation. You know, Mueller goes here, this is up for you guys to determine, continue the investigation and then make the determination. I am not for impeaching President Trump. He's a Republican. I don't like his policies. I don't like his morality that he's doing in the presidential seat. I don't. But 
we need to fully investigate. We need to make sure that there is no stone unturned, that we have gone every avenue we can. And the Mueller report laid out a lot of stuff for continuing investigation. So we need to continue to do that. Then we need to make a determination. But 2020, the American people are going to speak. They're going to go to the vote box and they're going to go, look, Mueller did his job. He did the investigation. Congress did their job. They fully investigated it. We know what the findings are, and this is how we're going to vote. We will vote him out in 2020, and that's what we need to do. But we need to continue to investigate. And, you know, I would say the exact same thing if it happened to be President Obama going through this. Yes, I'm a Democrat, but we need to get to the bottom of it. We need to keep investigating. So let's turn back to um, some policy here what would you like to see happen to Republicans' tax reform bill? This was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. Would you like to see it repealed or significantly altered? And if you would like it to be repealed, it would bring significant revenue, particularly from corporate taxes, back into the Treasury. What would you like to see that revenue go towards? So if, you know, you know we are, we're a CPA firm, so we knew about this and we did a lot of research to prep our clients going, look, this is how the tax reform is going to change. This is what you need to look out for. And I was surprised at the number of people who didn't understand what was in the tax bill. Now, do I expect everybody to read it? No. But I expect you to have a general understanding of it. The tax bill did a lot of good things to help people. It really did. And you know, I get asked all the time, you're a Democrat. How can you say that? I said, because it did. You know, at the end of the day, people are paying less taxes, which everybody wants. But what people don't understand at the end of the day, when they're paying less taxes, less is going into the big pot, as we explained it in the office, to fund programs. We need to be realistic. We need a tax code where we can make sure that we are fully funding several programs, healthcare, public education. We need to make sure that transportation is funded. So we need to come up with a tax code. And yes, do I think corporations should be paying their fair taxes? I do. And that includes my business. And that means I'm going to have to pay more in taxes. And I'm okay doing that because I know that the, it's going to help and it's investing in my country. And that's where people have a hard time realizing that when you pay taxes, you are investing into your country. You get a benefit of having federal roads to drive on. You get the benefit of knowing that the federal education program is laying out and investing in their kids. So things like that. We need to change how people look at taxes but we need to have a real conversation and go, look, we need to make sure, you know, we're running at a $2 trillion deficit, partly because of the tax cuts. We need to make sure that it's a fair tax bill for everybody and everybody understands. How does that exactly look? I don't know how it exactly looks. And that's where you need to sit down with people and you need to have conversations across the aisle with several different people, those who own businesses, those who don't, economists, everybody needs to have conversations and draft legislation that makes sense. Um, sticking with an economic issue here, would you like to see the federal minimum wage increased? And if so, to what level? Yeah, I think the federal minimum income does need to increase. I think if you're working two full-time jobs to support your family, that is not okay. There was a time in this country where it took one income to comfortably support. I have to work so my husband and I can pay our mortgage and I can, you know, make sure we're saving money for our kids' college, make sure I can go buy them clothes. So, yes, the federal minimum wage needs to be increased. It does. And I think $15 is not 
out of the ordinary. I think sitting down at the end of does that mean that I'm paying more to my employees? Yes, it does. Does that mean that I'm taking less home for my business? It does. But investing in my employees, they're going to work for me. They're going to work hard for me. They're going to want to come to work. And, you know, they're go- I'm going to reap the benefits that way. <clears throat> and that's what employers need to realize, that if you invest in your employees and you take care of your employees, you go about loyalty. And at the end of the day, they will work very, very hard for you, and you will reap the benefits that way. You, you got to pay somebody what they're worth. You need, and you're sitting there and telling somebody, I'm sorry, you have to go work two jobs to be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment and your daycare and your medical. That's not okay. They're taking time away from their family. Their kids are losing their parents. So, yeah, we do need to increase the federal minimum wage. Um, and another issue that is likely to be on Democrats' plate in 2021 is the issue of marijuana legalization. Senator Cory Booker recently introduced the Marijuana Justice Act that would reschedule and legalize marijuana at the federal level. And he's got several co-sponsors who are also running for president. Here at home, Marietta's police chief recently formalized a policy aimed at prioritizing treatment over arrest for nonviolent drug offenses. So what is your position on marijuana legalization at this point? I I, it needs to be legalized. There are so many great health benefits from it that it does need to be legalized. Does it need to have a tax put on it? And I hate to say that. Yes, it does. And it needs to be controlled in a way where people are not abusing it. But there's, I think the good outweighs the bad. And we just need to work on, well, how do we regulate it? Who gets to grow it? How is it distributed? All that kind of stuff. You know, do the pharmaceutical companies get to do it? Is it local growers? However, you know, we need to craft legislation that will make it safe for those who want to use it for either medicinal purposes or recreational purposes. And just like alcohol, put, you know, what I call parameters around it. But yeah, we should legalize marijuana. All right. Uh, well, we've uh, run through a bunch of policy here. Are there any other issues or anything else you'd like to talk about to wrap up? Um, for those who know me, I'm not huge on big speeches. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, but I'd rather show you what I'm going to do. Um, and that, whether that's, you know, hey, going out and, and, and we're going to do this event and I'm going to, you know, sit there and say, look, we, well, this is what we need to do to work on these issues. This is how we're going to get there. Let me show you how I'm going to do it and then show them and do it. That's what I am. I am very big on. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to go do, and then I'm going to go do it. Um, those who know me work I work incredibly hard for my family. I work incredibly hard for my business. Um, I'm going to need your vote in 2020. Um, we're going up against Barry Laudermilk, who's had the seat since 2013, and he hasn't faced a Democrat opponent in a very long time. He hasn't faced a woman Democrat opponent in a very long time. And I think the Republicans and very lateral work are going to be very surprised at the traction we're going to be gaining that we've already gained. And they're going to have a real fight on our hands. And I'm hoping, and I know I will make it to Washington, but it's going to show the Republicans that they need, just like the Democrats need to come to the table and they need to work together. And this is how we're going to do it. And that's all I got. And if listeners want to learn more about you or your campaign, how could they do that? The best way is to go to the website, and it's Kinsey, K-I-N-S-E-Y, the number four, Congress, so Kinsey for Congress. Um, And there is so much information on the website, but the best way to find out about me is pick up the phone and call my campaign. I have been talking to people 
since we announced we were running in March. I've had, you know, I will call everybody back. I promise I will call you back. It may not be within an hour, but that's how you get to know your person. And I'm making myself available to my voters. Come and we always post where we're going to be. You know, we don't ever have specific topics we're going to cover. I really like to engage everybody. Come with a list of questions. That's the best way to get to know a candidate. And ask personal questions. You know, ask me what my favorite candy is. Why not know, hey, I'll tell you what it is. And then, you know, start with easy questions and let's dive into the policy. You tell me what you need. But visit the website and donate. You know, I need people who are going to be willing to lace up their shoes and knock on doors, help plan events. I'm going to need people who love writing postcards. And I'm going to need people to help support financially the campaign. So go there and get all the info that you need. All right. Well, Rachel Kinsey is a candidate for the 11th Congressional District against Barry Loudermilk in 2020. And Rachel, thanks so much for doing the podcast. Best of luck on the trail. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, thank you to Rachel for joining the podcast. Um, And thank you, dear listeners, for uh, sticking with us through a long episode. We had been trying to make them a little shorter for you guys, but lots of stuff to talk about this week, um, as always. But with that, we are going to leave that there. Uh, So Luke, thank you for joining us today. No problem. And Ben, it was great to have you back. It's been a little while. Good dogs. Glad to be back. All right. We'll talk to you all next week. Bye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.